Before we get to our show, here is a podcast we think you're going to love. Morbidology is a weekly true crime podcast hosted by me, Emily G. Thompson, author of Unsolved Child Murders, Cults Uncovered, and co-author of Unsolved Murders, True Crime Cases Uncovered. 911 emergency. My son shot my husband. I need an ambulance. He's bleeding. Using investigative research combined with primary audio, including 911 calls, interviews, and trial testimony, Morbidology takes a look at some of the world's most heinous murders. Do you know why you're here? For a uh, home invasion gone terribly wrong. Listen to Morbidology now on Apple, Spreaker, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever else you get podcasts. Hi, five listeners. Hi. Hello. Hello out there. It's Liz and Samantha. Perhaps it's you coming out during the apocalypse. Here we are. Uh, We're recording in social distance mode. Yeah, this is our first time that we have recorded remotely with each other. We've done more than 100 episodes, always in the same room. But um, uh, these are the end times. So we are remotely. We're trying. Look, trying to us, man. It's extremely surreal. I feel like by the time this comes out, things will have changed even more. Yeah. So, um, we'll try to keep making this as long as we can because I feel like, look, five listeners, you're gonna be bored. Yeah, we're all gonna be bored. We need something to be. Do. We we might as well have recorded Unsolved Mysteries <laughs> Rewatch podcast. This is somehow the most surreal aspect of an extremely surreal week. Uh, it's like, well, I'll sit down and record my Unsolved Mysteries podcast. As I'm like <laughs> literally begging one of the places that I work to close and being like, this is a matter of life and death. Like, I cannot urge you enough. Please fucking close. Switching from that to, and now we're going to talk about a lake monster. <laughs> but. Actually, it's very appropriate for Unsolved Mysteries because the tone of the episode that we're going to be talking about today is could not be all more over, all over the map. It's kind of inappropriate. Uh, yeah, a little bit. We go, little... From, we go from some very silly topics to some very serious topics at whip, whiplash speed. There's no warning. <laughs> and that's a good metaphor for life right now. Uh, how are you doing, Samantha? Fine. I did a lot of cleaning yesterday. I feel like at some point I'm going to run out of things to clean. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, just kind of trying to survive. I don't know. It's things are weird, and gonna get weird. I weirder. feel like, like, I feel like that's what I'm where I'm at. I just like, all right. Every couple of hours, I open up Twitter to see what another weird thing is going on. Yeah. But yeah, that's taking very it accurate. One day at a time. If you're not in our, uh, if you're listening to this and you're not in our Facebook group, you should head over there and we can all keep each other com- company digitally and virtually in these weird times. That's a really good suggestion. And you do not have to talk about the show and there. You can, talk about so anything. long as you're like being respectful, yeah, you can talk about whatever you want. So yeah. um, that can just be a place to hang out if you need somewhere to hang out because I think we're all going to get 
you know, like even best case scenario, we're all going to get kind of lonely and weird. So (laughs) we may, some of us already have gotten that point. I don't know, (laughs) not speaking for anyone specifically, but yeah, I hope, you know, I'm stocked up on snacks and crafts. So I think I'm, I'm pretty, pretty good, but yeah, it's weird. Things are weird. I don't know. Yeah. I still got up this morning and watched Unsolved Mysteries. I mean, I think to some extent like i'm i'm at least not going to work for a week probably longer than that and um having some some routine some slight semblance of normalcy is probably good for us so i think so uh oof god damn i i feel like i want to like encourage people to stay home and shit but i feel like by the time this goes out Nothing I say will be relevant anymore. So that's probably true. We're recording like things are changing so fast. Yeah, Sunday. By the time this comes out on Thursday, it's probably going to be who knows what's going to happen by then. So I just hope everybody is hanging in there. Really. Yeah, yeah. Everybody, be smart, be safe. We hope you're okay. We are thinking of you. Yes. And uh, we do appreciate our five listeners. You've always been very cool and uh, supportive of us. So, man, we hope you're all right. Yeah, it's, I agree. It's wild how quickly things have changed. Like somehow Wednesday, I was like getting my hair done, and then it's like, you know, now it's like, well, now I don't live the ha- leave the house. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah. I have my stockpiles of, you know, food. Yeah. Uh, I yeah, you know, I don't know. Well, we'll we'll try to keep doing it. Yeah, we. Will. That's all we can say right now. That's all we can say. Now we can talk about a murder. I know. What the (laughs) fuck? (laughs) Uh, uh, Oh, if you are somehow trying to profit off of this, I I hate you and I'm coming for you. I doubt any of our listeners would do that because our listeners do seem like really cool, chill people. But I've seen people online selling jacked up like prices on baby formula. Yeah. And hand sanitizer and if you do that i hope that your supplies fall over and crush you to death (laughs) absolutely i second that a hex on you that's a terrible terrible human behavior yeah we all need to come together and take care of each other at this point if you got extra toilet paper give it to your neighbor like come on now yeah no unacceptable yeah all right so we're gonna talk about season five episode two (laughs) episode two yes Uh, i mean i think it's off with a wanted yes uh this is a wanted like liz said we are looking for mafu's hawk i probably pronounced that wrong um who is wanted That's not right i think right. and that's at least how robert stack said it um that's true who knows <laughs> he is wanted for the murder of 19 year old todd richard kelly who was the new boyfriend of mafu's his like love interest yeah uh her his ex christy mutzfeld the names in this one are a little bit tricky i apologize in advance todd and christy were from hamilton indiana which was a small lakeside resort town the two met during their junior year of high school and began dating after graduation he asked her to marry him but she declined because she was planning to go to college yeah, she just wasn't at that point of her life. Yeah, you're very young. She wasn't ready to get married. She was, you know, yeah. she had studied. It wasn't anything about him, but it was just, she, yeah, she wasn't ready. Yeah, things happen. So the next fall, 
uh, Christy started classes at a college seven miles away. While there, she met Mafuz, and the two began dating. Mufuz and his parents had immigrated to the United States from Bangladesh. Just a few weeks after they started dating, however, he and one of his friends were arrested for three separate robberies. During one robbery, they stole $1,000 worth of jewels from his aunt. However, he told Christy that it was his friend who was responsible. Really? How does his friend know that his aunt has all that jewelry lying around? <laughs> he wouldn't. Clearly, that was a lie. Uh, Mafuz was placed under house arrest. During this time, he became extremely possessive over Christy. He told her that if he found her with anyone else, he would kill them, and then he would kill her. Not great. Yeah, that's, um, shitty. Don't do that. <laughs> Don't do what? Don't, don't do that. No. Boo. Your girlfriend of a, what, a few weeks? Okay. Uh, he told her, yeah, a few months later, she decided to rekindle her ro- her relationship with Todd. However, Mafuz still tried to be part of Christie's life. Just two weeks before Todd's murder, Mafuz walked 10 miles from his house to Christie's, only to discover that she was out with Todd. On August 7th, that presumably made him mad. It seems like she had broken things off with him, and he was like, yeah, under house arrest? They had not even been dating that long. Yeah, and he's just not taking no for an answer. Yeah, uh, that's never happened in the history of men. Um... She was like, you're under house arrest. I don't want to date you. And he's like, well, that means I'll have to kill you and everyone you love. And she's like, yeah, I think good call not dating you. That's probably hmm. Yeah. Starting to think you're not the best guy for me. Probably gotta go. I'm seeing at least a couple red flags here. <laughs> On August 7th, 1989, Todd was at a friend's house when Mafuz appeared unexpectedly. He asked Todd if he was still planning on seeing Christy. Todd said that he would because she still loved him. The friend did not think that the two were angry with each other and that they parted amicably. This reenactment is really funny. Uh, first of all, there's the fashion is something else. Todd is like oh, wrenching so on good. a car in the driveway with his friend who has a really good mullet mustache combo. Yes. What should we? I didn't even know what to call that. He's definitely our MVM because of the mullet stash combo I'm not on his friend Mike. Good as na- at naming them as you are, but it was very, I don't know, like slicked back. It w- <laughs> at this point, I'm calling it a reason to live. <laughs> For this, this mustache mullet combo is your reason to live. You know what? If if that's, yeah. if that's the case, then you take what you yeah. can get. We gotta we gotta find the the few good things out there and really appreciate them. Another mystery in this segment is why reenactment Todd is like 40 years old. <laughs> the the <laughs> actors they got for the reenactments in this are terrible and the reenactments are terrible. Um, he has like neither he looks so much older than just out of co- high school. <laughs> Yeah, and the reenactment guy doesn't look anything like Mafuz either. No. Like, it's actually kind of confusing because yes. you're like, wait, who's that supposed to be? And then you're like, oh, that's him. What? <laughs> like, it makes it hard to follow because they did such a bad job with casting. Yeah, and like, even if they didn't look like them but were like approximate ages, it would make sense. It- <laughs> that would help. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, who is this middle aged mechanic in the driveway? Oh, that's supposed to be Todd. Makes no sense. It would help if he was wearing a name tag that said, hello, my name is Todd, because (laughs) I don't see how we're supposed to know that. I don't don't know. 
Like there needs to be an arrow and just up on the screen it says Todd. <laughs> <laughs> All right. At 7 a.m. on August 9th, 1989, Christy found Todd dead in his home. He had been stabbed seven times in the chest, back and ribs. Just Oof. hours earlier, the two, the two had spent time together in the home. Investigators determined that Todd had been killed around 3 a.m. When inspecting the crime scene, they noticed that the body had been cleaned up and moved into the living room from another part of the house. Sheriff L.M. McLeand, who also had a mustache, but it was kind of like a standard cop mustache. Yeah, I called that mustache the of course, because <laughs> of, course he has that of course, of course, that guy has that mustache. <laughs> it's like required. He's by like, yeah, yeah. I was kind of wondering if if he was when he was born as a baby, did he have that mustache? <laughs> and then his mom was like, well, this guy's going to be a sheriff. <laughs> Just look at that. No choice. Yeah. All right. Oh, we, oh the listeners got to hear a different pod dog. Did you hear that? That's my dog whining, which at some point I may need to pause and like go put him somewhere else because he's <laughs> he's very whiny today. Aww. We're all a little stir crazy, the dogs included. Aww. He knows something's up. Yeah, I think he does. All right, so Sheriff McLean noticed that there were no sheets on the bed. He also noticed a spot of blood on the floor near the bathroom door. It is believed... Well, you'd you'd have to be a sheriff to not notice there was a sheet on a bed. (laughs) This is some crack police work. Good thing. Good thing he was there. It is believed that the sheets were used to clean up the crime scene. The bed sheets have never been found. Outside, cigarette butts found in the front yard matched the brand smoked by Mufuz. It was also discovered that Todd's car had been wiped clean and the keys were missing. It was was theorized that the killer planned to remove the body from the scene but was unaware that the car did not work. So that made things a little bit difficult. Oh, whoops. (laughs) Investigators were certain that Mufuz was either involved or responsible for the murder. However, he vanished before uh, he could be questioned. Investigators then decided to track his movements around the time of the murder. Between 11 p.m. and 1 a.m. on the night of the murder, two eyewitnesses reported seeing Wafus walking barefoot in the direction of Todd's home. Uh, kind of weird he wasn't wearing shoes, but... Yeah, what the hell is with that, that detail? Was, that was very strange to me. Like, maybe he was just like in a hurry to go murder this guy and forgot to put his shoes Did on. he walk all the way there without shoes? Okay. Or were the shoes bloody and he ditched them? Oh. So he just never had shoes. Well, this at this point, they saw him walking towards his house. So that means he set out to murder this guy without shoes on. Maybe he was worried about shoe prints. Oh, maybe. There's a forensic files where someone takes off their shoes before breaking into a house. Because... I guess to not leave a shoe print, but then they just leave like a perfect footprint. Huh. So, did you in college ever have one person that like refused to walk around campus with shoes on? No, but there was this guy that always wore shorts even in the dead of winter. <laughs> That's almost weirder. We had this guy who never he was barefoot all the time, and I I feel like at the time I gross. knew the reason, but it I, it's like people that run barefoot. Which seems like, I don't know if it's actually good for your feet or that not. That trend died. No, I think that turned out to be a total scam. just how you, like, accidentally step on a piece of broken glass? Like, yeah. that just sounds dangerous. The world is gross. Yeah, you- <laughs> yes. And also full of, like, broken things. Yeah, you don't want to be and- running around 
barefoot. I don't, I don't know. Weird. Anyway, maybe this guy just didn't no. like shoes. We don't know. All right. At ver- he was an early barefoot runner. <laughs> he was a pioneer in the movement. Yeah, that could, you know what? Could have been it. So at virtually the same time that the eyewitnesses reported seeing Mafuz, Christy and Todd were together at Todd's home. While there, she heard noises outside, although Todd believed that it was his dog. At 2.30... Oh, right. At 2.30 a.m., Christy and Todd left his home and drove downtown in her car. She believed that at this time, Mafuz enters Todd's home. At around 3 a.m., they returned to his home, and she dropped him off. The coroner determined that Todd was dead within 15 minutes. At 4.30 a.m., Mafuz called Christy from his parents' house 10 miles away, Two hours later, he showed up on her, in her bedroom. At that point, she broke off their relationship. He angrily left, and that was the last time she saw him. So I feel like she, like, kind of got lucky. Like, she saw him the night that he, ki- that he presumably killed Todd, and he had threatened yeah. her before. I, f- I feel like, I don't know, she barely made it through this. There is some speculation from Todd's family that she's not telling the whole story. Yes. And particularly about discovering the body, I would say, where she says she doesn't notice the body right away, but it's also, like, right by the front door. And I'm assuming that he threatened her, so she helped him move the body. Oh, that could have been. And she just, and that she just doesn't want to admit it. That's a really good Even though that's, even though that's perfectly understandable. Like, obviously you would help in that situation, like this person just murdered someone before your very eyes like obviously you'll do what they yeah. say but i i wonder if she feels guilty about that and and doesn't want to admit it that really could be. and yeah she's very lucky i think to be alive because mafu seems unhinged yes. so numerous pieces of evidence were found that led police to suspect mafu's including a note written to his father apologizing for bringing shame onto the family and several black hairs found at the crime scene that resembled the length and co- color of his hair also, okay, well, I don't know about that. Also, he had told... I hate hair evidence. It's ridiculous. It's a normal hate. It's a normal <laughs> hatred. <laughs> also, he told several friends that he would kill anyone who dated Christy. Christy was investigated and eliminated as a possible <laughs> suspect. He's just, like, going around. He's, like, at the cafeteria. I was like, so, if anyone uh, ever dates Christy, I'm gonna murder them. <laughs> oh, good to see you, too, Mafuz. weird... Why would you go around telling people that? Yeah, All right, at this know. point in the episode is where, like Liz said, we're introduced to the the theory put forth by Todd's family that Christy was somehow involved. They point to several inconsistencies in her story. His Todd's father Vernon, who had a mustache, uh, believes that Christy and Todd were making love and that Mafuz was watching from nearby. Okay, uh, he believes that Mafuz broke. It's good. This reenactment is creepy. It's better than the first reenactment, but it's also, I don't know, it's like creepy and sad to think of Todd's family just sitting around imagining his murder. Yeah, it's creepy. I don't like it. So they believe that Mafuz broke into the home and stabbed Todd to death in front of Christy. Um, Todd's father says that he believes that Mafuz then convinced her to help him cover up the murder. He believes that she helped Mafuz move the body. Christy denies any involvement in Todd's death. Sheriff McClelland also doubts that she or anyone else was involved other than Mafuz. However, Vernon notes that it would have been practically impossible for Mafuz to have killed Todd, cleaned up the crime scene, and returned to his parents' home in such a brief amount of time. 
Sheriff McClelland believes that he could have made it home in that amount of time. If not, he believes that he could have called someone to pick him up and take him home, even though there's no evidence that, that actually happened. Yeah, there would. That doesn't really make any sense. One inconsistency that everybody agrees on in Christie's story is her claim, like Liz said, that she did not initially notice Todd's body when she entered his home. This seems impossible because the body was right next to the front door. However, Sheriff McClellan does not believe that this means that she was involved in any way, which is... I do appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, that's true. That doesn't necessarily mean anything. To date... I'm... Sorry, I'm go ahead. I'm just going to continue. You can make your comment. Yeah, so my theory is if she really saw him get stabbed right in front of her, she doesn't necessarily remember exactly what happens. That's really traumatic. Yeah. Um, if she... Maybe he they tried to get the body to the car and then found out the car didn't work and it just ended up being left by the front door. Like, I wouldn't see that as she's involved in the murder. I'm sure she was afraid for her life. But it's also possible she doesn't really remember everything because her boyfriend got stabbed in I front know. of her. That seems really... Honestly, that seems likely. Yeah, that's what I think. At the I time think. of the broadcast, Christy had not been charged in connection with Todd's death. Mafuz is the only person wanted in the murder, and it is believed that he may have escaped to India or might be somewhere in the United States. So this is solved, in, but it took many years. So in February of 2011, Mafuz was arrested in Indira uh, Gandhi International Airport by the Central Bureau of Investigation. He had been living under aliases in Bangladesh to avoid capture by international authorities. Bangladesh does not have an extradition treaty with the United States. However, India does. So when he arrived there, authorities were able to arrest him. In November of 2013, he pled guilty to voluntary manslaughter after more than, um, after spending more than three years in jail in both India and Indiana. On March 14th, 2014, he was sentenced to 40 years in prison, which was the maximum sentence under his plea agreement. In his confession, wow. he stated that he arrived at the home on the night of the murder to find Christy and Todd having sex. He claimed that he waited for several hours until Christy left. After she left, he confronted Todd and stabbed him to death. Based on the oh, based on this confession, it is no longer believed that Christy had any involvement in the murder. Oh, poor Christy! Yeah, I know it hurt. So, it, Unsolved Mysteries interviews her for this episode, and it's really sad because her his family did not let her go to the funeral. And she's crying and saying that she doesn't understand why they're accusing her and that she understands that they're hurting, but she's hurting too. So it's just sad all around. It just makes her loss so much worse. Because... God, this Mafuz guy, they were dating for a few fucking weeks. Yeah, what a possessive monster. Garbage. And I'm... You know, I'm glad he got caught in the end, but he spent like 23 years out there just like living his life, which is really too yeah. bad. Mm. But the next mystery is much more lighthearted. Yeah. Yeah. What is with this show? <laughs> Who thought this was a good idea? Unsolved mysteries. <laughs> We're going to really lighten things up now with an unexplained. <laughs> it's finally time to talk about Champ, the <laughs> lake finally. monster. Finally. A man stabbed to death? Sure. A lake monster? <laughs> yep. Coming up next. So we learned that the Iroquois believed that there was a sea monster in uh, Lake Champlain, and that that is now known as Champ. Mm-hmm. 
Robert Sachs tells us there have been hundreds of witnesses hundreds. to Champ. Okay. Where's Link Champlain, you ask? It's near Burlington, Vermont. And Champ is described as a large reptile like creature similar to the Loch Ness Monster. When Robert Stagg is first introducing this segment, he got there's a couple of teasers before we get to it, and he never says <laughs> champ. He's always like, a Loch Ness-like monster. <laughs> and I was like, this thing clearly has a stupid name, because much like Ogopogo, he clearly didn't want to <laughs> say it. And it, Champ isn't so bad, and I understand that it like, sounds like, like champ plant, but whatever. So, um... The first main uh, case or sighting, I guess, that we talked about is um, witness Sandra Mency. She um, was on vacation in July of 1977 with her two children and her fiance, Tony, um, when they decided to like pull over the car by the lake. And they, I think they were going to have like a picnic like or something a- anyway. So she's, yeah, so she's sitting by the lake and she sees a disturbance to the water. And then in the best CGI that you've ever seen, (laughs) they show a fucking lake monster neck come out of the water and be like, (laughs) and Sandra describes that she saw the head rise and the the mouth open and water comes out of the mouth. And she's just like staring there, sitting there staring like, in this rapture, but then Tony sees it and freaks <laughs> Tony the fuck takes out. It extremely fucking seriously. I'm not sure if he expected this thing to come up on land and eat them all. Uh, yeah, I'm not. I don't really get Tony's reaction. Like he's basically like, "We are getting the fuck out of here, and we are getting out of here now." So he grabs the kids. He's like yelling at her to get in the car. Uh, she takes a camera, turns around, and snaps the one photo. Yes, which is which I think a fa- show famous photo. Like, yeah, if you've ever seen a photo of Champ, this is it. There's just the water. Most of it is just water, and then you see, I don't know, a log, a something, a lake monster, just the head maybe sticking out of I'm the water, sure. and it just is colorful. There's got to be, like, at least 20 History Channel documentaries that, like, try and recreate this, right? I didn't look any of them up, but oh, I'm sure, sure you could no, probably I didn't Google either, it but... and see what kind of things people have proposed that this is actually. But I mean, obviously, it's a lake monster, but... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's clearly a lake monster, but uh, Sandra didn't share the photo for two years because she was afraid of um, being ridiculed. And in that time, she did get rid of the negatives. So that was perhaps the, not the best move to prove the existence well, of Champ. But uh, in 79, she was convinced by friends to get the photograph enlarged and she brought it to Joe Zarzinski, who was writing a book about Champ. Um... And he took it seriously, so that sort of, like, got it into the public sphere. He sent the print to the University of Arizona, where it was analyzed by cryptozoologist Richard Greenwell, who looks like a cryptozoologist, (laughs) if that makes any sense. Our listeners know exactly what that looks like. (laughs) He said that we digitized it and ran all sorts of computer enhancement techniques, we were looking for pulleys or ropes or anything like that. Super 
positions, but we found no evidence of hoaxing. And we concluded that the object, whatever it is, was there in the lake at that estimated distance. There wasn't any sort of superimposition. So he's just saying, I don't know that this is a lake monster, but this photo, according to him, is not a fake. Okay, well, I guess it's kind of helpful. Um, he then goes on to say that the object in the Manti photograph resembles a pleosaur, an ancient reptile from 60 to 70 million oh years God. ago with a long neck and flippers, could... which was, I loved those dinosaurs as a kid, so I hope it's that. <laughs> How could this um, thing live in a lake and this is the only evidence we have of it? <laughs> um, because it's obviously real. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I mean, come on. Another... <laughs> Another idea is that Champ might be, and I'm definitely going to say this wrong, a Zulagodon, which is a snake-like whale. <laughs> right. So they showed they showed a picture of this on Unsolved Mysteries. So the pleosaur theory, right, is that what we're seeing pop out of the water of Champ is the neck, but with this idea, the I it would actually be a tail okay. because it's like. A whale with a weird snake-like tail? Could this thing have been a, a beaver? Like that one picture? <laughs> that was the best! And I wish we were talking about that, because when they put those two photos <laughs> side by side, man oh man. But um, there is a suggestion that this is actually a lake sturgeon, which has been known to reach seven feet in length. Yeah, I mean, probably. Some, oh, something um, we know is there, and we've actually seen with our own eyes. <laughs> definitely not that. Yeah, and definitely we... <laughs> a snake-like whale that's been extinct for three million years. Um, it's it's, it's actually been extinct oh, for <laughs> twenty million years. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> But when you get into the millions, at some point it's just arbitrary. It's just a really long time. Um, so then we hear about another eyewitness, which is in 1988. On July 7th, Walter and Sandy Tappan go out with their daughter Heidi onto the lake with a camcorder specifically to look for Champ, who they had supposedly seen the day before. Can, can only so, Sandra see this thing? <laughs> Maybe. Maybe that's why you and, and I haven't seen be. it. Not that we haven't gone to the no, lake. the real reason is um, only Sandra's and Sandy's can see it. <laughs> your name, well, maybe it's just your name has to start with an F and you well, can maybe. see it and I can. can test that theory. <gasps> oh my god. Okay. Um. So, what is so funny to me about this eyewitness account is that they supposedly see Champ. So they are like, okay, we need to get a camcorder and go back out there the next day. They looked for like <laughs> 10 minutes before seeing it again. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's very efficient. So um, they describe seeing a bunch of humps gliding through the water. And then you see some like grainy camcorder fish footage that I don't know what to tell you this, but it's fish. <laughs> like, I'm, I don't fish. But those are fish, <laughs> like coming to the surface of the, was the water is being disturbed. Okay, but but can we again by fish? <laughs> okay, but we have to talk about Sandy's description of what she saw and how dramatic she explained this. I actually hate <laughs> it. So, so is she Sandy? 
Yeah, well, she's Sandy. Okay, I'm getting <laughs> Sandy and Sandra mixed up. So Sandy, who's been out looking for a lake monster for a whole fucking ten minutes, is like, oh, I got onto the sun deck of our boat, <laughs> and I looked around to the horizon, and then I saw the most beautiful thing. It was Champ! And he rose up. And he turned just like this. She's like <laughs> acting it out with her arm, like her arm is a puppet, and she, which I'm doing right now, just so you can just picture it. And then Champ turned and looked <laughs> at me, and I looked at. It's like they had this moment where they communed because their eyes met across the room. You know, in Boz Lerman, Romeo and Juliet, where Claire Danes and Leonardo DiCaprio are in costumes and they like look at each other through a fish tank and they fall in love. But it's a, it's a, like a woman that. named Sandy and a lake monster. <laughs> yeah, they just turn and look at each other and then Honestly, everything. You would different. think that's what happened based on her description. It's so melodramatic. I can't even. And it goes on for so long. Like, this woman is still describing this lake monster. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They could have also <laughs> cut that down a little bit, but I think they wanted a, a long segment about the She helps monster. drag it out. So, um, Sandy claims that day she saw seven lake <laughs> monsters. Which I just say is greedy. Most of us have never seen one lake monster. And now Sandy's like, oh, really? Well, I've in seen one, seven. In one day? Okay, Please. I find it hard to believe that there's one snake whale in this lake let alone seven <laughs> how i'm not sure how big this lake is but that really seems like a lot and again i am a city mouse but that camcorder footage is of fish <laughs> <laughs> there is nothing with humps coming in and out of the water those that is a school of fish going to the surface <laughs> sandy shut your whore mouth and then Sandra comes back. Sandra is much more likable than Sandy. Sandra comes back and says that you'll never convince her that the photo is of anything else other than Champ. And it's like, fair enough. Whatever. I don't really care. <laughs> <laughs> the end. Well, that is uh, Champ the Lake Monster. Yeah, I prefer Ogopogo. I, I have to say. Was Ogopogo the same one that was the beaver I, or were those two different ones? That might have been something else. But I really loved seeing everyone in their very Canadian outfits be like, oh, oh the yeah. Ogopogo? <laughs> yeah, that's real. <laughs> the sweaters really made that segment. Yeah, so then I was like, well, okay, Ogopogo is real, but Champ, I'm pretty sure Champ's just a bunch <laughs> of fresh. Alright, so in uh, true Unsolved Mysteries fashion, our next segment is Amnesia. I just, it still amuses me that there's an entire category of segment that's just Amnesia. <laughs> It seems so specific and unnecessary. You know I guess it was a different time. I guess it was before you could just look someone up on Facebook. I don't know. Yeah. All right. So yeah. this is the case of quote Pierre unquote. <laughs> In May of 1992, a man named Pierre. Oh, guess. Do you want to know what I named I, Pierre's I'm, mustache? Is though? something French? It's well. No, that would have been good. It's very scraggly and it's very yellow like not blonde it's very yellow and it yellow. goes through a transformation that we can go over at the end of the session i'm calling it the corn tassel <laughs> but so appropriate oh 
Yes, it is a corn tassel. <laughs> Ew. Okay. So a man. <laughs> so a man named Pierre. I'm doing air quotes. Said he inexplicably found himself along a deserted stretch of California coastline, feeling weak, hungry, and terribly confused. Pierre spotted a telephone. His first chance to obtain help. Only then did it dawn on him that he had no one to call. He said, I realized I couldn't phone anybody, and that's when I realized I didn't know anybody, including myself. Those first few minutes, I was literally felt nothing, and it was so empty. It was lonely and painful. So, he was alone. That's just life, Pierre. That's how we all feel. It's not special. So, a but he doesn't. But he doesn't remember, so he doesn't know. So it. alone okay. and distraught, Pierre searched through his belongings. Tucked into one of his shirts was a crumpled piece of paper. It was a library card from the Boston Public Library. Handwritten on the back was the name April, comma Pierre. And when Robert Stack says April, it's very French. I'm not going to try and recreate it. I think his name is pronounced more <laughs> French because uh, he has a French accent. Uh, so he says that that must be him and that what he has with him must be his belongings, including his shirt and his socks. Uh, Pierre claimed that he was plagued by hazy memories of San Diego, California, 400 miles to the south. He had just $17 in his pocket, so he set out hitchhiking. Three days later, Pierre was wandering the streets of San Diego searching for something that might tell him who he was. He said that he was so sure that the city would bring back all of his memories, but it did not. He says that he saw downtown, but he said he felt nothing. It looked at, He looked at the buildings, but they meant nothing to him. He walked the streets of the city for a long time, but no memories came back. Pierre felt that he was hovering on the brink of madness. Finally, a sympathetic bus driver gave him a ride to the St. Vincent de Paul homeless shelter. Dr. Julie Becker was a counseling program manager at the shelter when Pierre walked in. She says that they have had cases of people pretending that they didn't know who they are, but Pierre was unique. She said that sometimes in the other cases, the residents are after something, but that it, that wasn't Pierre's case at all. He didn't ask for anything. He didn't even ask for help. He just wanted to know who he was. So after six months of physical and psychological examinations, doctors could find no apparent cause of Pierre's memory loss. They did, however, theorize that he was suffering from something called trauma-induced amnesia. While at St. Vincent's, Pierre concentrated on reviving his lost memory, Soon, fragments of his former self began to emerge. He apparently had considerable knowledge of physics, advanced math, and computers. And he even became convinced that he could fly an airplane. Which... What? What is with gay amnesia? And I just thought he could fly an airplane. Where someone was like, allowed to actually fly a plane, even though they claim to have no memories whatsoever. Yes. And then it turned out that guy did not know how to fly a plane. They found out who he was. If I get amnesia, I'm probably going to say that as a joke and not even know I'm joking. I'll be like, oh, I think I have a podcast. Also, I totally can fly a plane. Let me try. So Pierre also found that he had a talent for music and he learned to play the guitar in just a few hours. Hoping to add detail to Pierre's fragmented memories, Unsolved Mysteries arranged for him to consult with a police sketch artist. Two portraits were created of people who may have been significant in Pierre's past, the first was a man whom Pierre believed was his cousin Luke, whose nickname was Curly. 
his name for real <laughs> for some reason it's so funny it was actually curly that's hilarious like oh i'm looking for this guy oh really what's his name <laughs> curly the second drawing was a woman whom pierre believed was once his employer he thought that her name might be carol oh and that they work together in a business office <laughs> very specific a business office i too work in a business office <laughs> which i think i yeah you know a business office all right, so he said that this really stuck out to me. He said, if I try to remember something too hard, I get a horrible headache, and that I wouldn't want to inflict that on my worst enemy. <laughs> I would. I mean, yeah, I probably would too. He says, I just want to find <laughs> out what is in my past if I can. So this is solved. On the night of the broadcast, the woman Pierre called Carol recognized him as a former employee. Apparently, that was true. She can. Conf- <laughs> Did she work at a you know, I assume she does, but it wasn't specified. So she confirmed that his name was indeed April or Pierre April uh, or April. I'm not really fucking sure how to pronounce it, like a French person. You have to say everything with a fake French accent, and then right. it'll be Just fine. Imagine. <laughs> Just oh, imagine that's what I did. Carol contacted Pierre <laughs> and told him that he has two sisters and that his parents live in Lachine, Canada. The following day, Pierre talked to his dad for the first time in more than five months. Oh my god. No one write in to tell me that his accent isn't indeed French and that it's French-Canadian. I know they're different, but whatever. Oh, uh, it was, yeah. He yeah. says that it was a very emotional moment, but even then, he was he had to tell them that he didn't totally trust them 100%, which they seemed very understanding of. He asked them to send him family photos and his birth certificate and anything else that they could think of. Um, when the package arrived, Pierre and his fiance, who is a woman he met in San Diego, sat down with a friend to get the first look at Pierre's long lost past. Um, he says that it's strange to be told who you are and what you've done. He said that he felt like someone again, and for quite a few uh, months, he was nobody, which has to be a really eerie feeling. Um, in the final update to the episode, they tell us that he has since regained all of his memories. So this is weird i don't it seems to be a legit it does amnesia case i think convincing at the very beginning of this he says he basically apologizes that his voice shakes sometimes because it's very emotional for him to not know who he is and um no even without knowing who he is this guy seems to have a better handle (laughs) on his life than i do considering he like learns how to play the guitar in two hours starts busking music and gets engaged (laughs) I was like, wow, this guy is really working with nothing yeah. and is doing quite well. I really I'm don't very know impressed how you would navigate life. Like, you not knowing who... I just had to go get a fucking... This guy has, like, no ID, right? Except a Boston library card. And he's out there playing the guitar, making music, apparently chatting up women to the point <laughs> that they will marry him. So, uh, wow. That's all I can say. Literally. Good job, corn tassel. Um, yeah, we need to talk about the transformation that his mustache goes through because when we see him in the update, he has grown his his beard into his corn tassel mustache, but like you mean a crop it's circle, like almost a circle around his mouth. Yeah, <laughs> is that what we're gonna call it? Absolutely. <laughs> it starts as corn circle. and becomes so much more. <laughs> you know what? It really does. 
like like Pierre himself, <laughs> who transforms into a uh, you know a real person. His I his think so. Tassel mustache transforms man, into a who knows what happened to Pierre. That what a is, journey. It, it's interesting to get what I think is a legit amnesia case, and not. Just people saying, I hope that this person is not missing and has amnesia. Like, this is... This one is fascinating. And you have to wonder, you know, I googled it and I wasn't able to find really any other information on Pierre. Yeah. But trauma-induced amnesia. Like, you have to... How horrible. Like... I don't, I don't even want to think or the, about his what brain was like, in order to survive, we probably need to just life. jettison everything. Yeah, that's that's not good. But <laughs> yeah. you know how to, did he know how to yeah, fly he, a plane, though? That's what I no. really want to know. Or was he just making that up? That okay. was never confirmed. Now we got a special alert if we're done <laughs> talking about the crop circle. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're yeah. not fighting with the crop circle. I don't really want to talk about the special alerts, but I guess we have to. First of all, there's a yes. really long update. Boo on to that. that. We have already seen. It was pretty much the whole episode again, or the whole segment again. Boo to that indeed. And then Robert Stack comes out to, like, you think the episode's over, and then Robert Stack comes out to say that they're doing something special. This is basically, uh, yeah, yeah, this, this is like an America's alert. Most Wanted type segment. That they, wanted. they tack on like two of these at the end, and they're both really depressing. So whatever good vibes you were feeling about a lake monster and Pierre getting his life back will all be immediately dashed. Because we have the case of Joseph and Lois Prant in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Um, Joseph is an extreme dirtbag who had been um, married to Lois for 14 years. They had two daughters together. Lois was pregnant with a third child. Uh, Joseph was in and out of jail. He had been previously convicted of burglary, fraud, theft, and forgery. At some point, Lois goes to talk to legal aid about seeking a divorce. Uh, which I believe Joseph found out about. So on July 31st, 1992, he's released from prison after serving two and a half months for embezzlement and a parole violation. Uh, And at this time, Lois was 39. Um, So by August 5th, he arrives at, so just a few days after he's released, he arrives at Lois's apartment and kidnaps her at gunpoint in front of the children and their friend Janice McRae. She's forced into the car and Joseph and vanishes with Lois. Um, that night, he called his mother, which is fucking bizarre, and told her that he had killed Lois and dumped her body in a nearby lake about 30 (laughs) miles away. Three days later, her body was found in the area as described. She had been shot to death. By August 12th, she was laid to rest. Uh, Unsolved Mysteries wants to reassure you that the two daughters were safe and living with relatives. So the point of this segment is that Joseph is wanted for her murder, um, as well as that and the unborn child, and he was believed to be in Florida. This first aired September 23rd, 1992. So only, you know, not even two months after that happened because they were trying to find Joseph. Um, he was eventually captured in Laredo, Texas, where very disturbingly he was working as a border security guard. Um, so about a year after the segment was 
uh, aired in September 1993, he was caught. So at his murder trial, he claims that Lois shot herself with a gun, which nobody on earth believes. Not even like a newborn baby would believe that story. (laughs) There's a witness to him kidnapping his wife and forcing her into a car with a gun. Who is going to think? Who's going to think that? Anyway. um, Yeah, several witnesses testified that he had confessed to the murder. Um, he had told the witnesses that he killed Lois because he wanted a divorce. Because she wanted a divorce. Which, of course, she wanted a divorce. You're terrible. Um, but yeah. In 1994, yeah, he, he was convicted like of the murder and sentenced to life in prison without parole. So, it's a very sad case. Um, ugh, Lois's poor family. That poor woman that's just a witness to her friend being kidnapped and there's nothing she can do. Their children who are he doesn't seem to Their give a fuck about the fact that they're a witness to this uh, and that now they don't have a mom. Like everything about it is terrible. No. And it's super weird that he would call his mom to confess. I do not know what that means. But now we get a possibly even more depressing one. Yeah, so really brace yourself. Yeah, if you can believe it, it gets even worse. So this is the <laughs> Our second second uh, special alert is that we're looking for the kidnapper of Martha Doe Roberts. So 65-year-old Martha Doe Roberts vanished from her Eads, Tennessee home on August 7th, 1992. She is believed to have been abducted. She was last seen at 9.30 a.m. when her husband, Alan, left for work. When he returned later that afternoon, she was gone. That night, he received a ransom call where a muffled male voice demanded $100,000. He threatened to kill her if his demands were not met. The kidnapper did not call back and has made no demands since. Alan made a personal plea to the kidnapper, stating that he was willing to do anything necessary to save his wife. And in this, Alan is crying. It is the saddest fucking thing you've ever seen in your life. He clearly clearly loved her. It it really comes through in his plea. And I feel so bad for him. Yes. So um, I pulled the Unsolved Mysteries wiki, which actually gives us a little bit more information. Um, so at the time, the abductor was, be- was, there was no suspect, but the abductor was believed to be a white male in his 40s or 50s who, get this, used a fake exaggerated Oh my god! Asian How could this guy be even worse? Messages. So... It's like Liz, Pete, would you like he, a guy that was a murderer worse. and right. a kidnapper? Um, it's like, oh my god, no. And then it's like, it's, guess what? He's also super racist. It's like, what? <sighs> yep. So, um, this case was also featured on the FBI files. They were really trying to find this guy. Um, the result is that it's solved, um, but it's sad. After the broadcast, several members of Martha's family and friends, along with her husband, Alan, received phone messages from the kidnapper demanding $185,000 for her safe return. In some of the calls, the caller had the family member or friend ask a specific question, which would be correctly answered by, quote, Martha. The caller also claimed that Alan had hired the, the caller to kidnap his wife and that he had not paid them. However, oh my God. Um, Alan claimed that this was not true, of course. On Aug- in August of 1993, investigators identified a prime suspect in the case. 59-year-old Charles Jackson. That name Lord sounds Jr., so fake. Who was a neighbor and Lord business Jr. associate of Alan. It was determined... No, that's not real. <laughs> Charles Jackson Lord Jr. 
who went by Charles Lord. Yeah, it sounds super fake. It was determined that he most likely made the ransom calls. It was discovered that Lord was in heavy, was in um, a lot of debt, and that he what? had embezzled money previously from a church and from the government. <laughs> Lord later confessed that on the morning of the kidnapping, he called Alan and pretended that he was interested in purchasing a property that Alan was oh my selling. God. He did this in order to get Alan out of the house. He then went into their house and kidnapped Martha. He originally planned on holding her for ransom, um, but he took her to his apart- the apartment above his garage <gasps> and suffocated her while his own wife was sleeping in the house. It is believed that the wow, this guy is really bad at kidnapping people for ransom. That's just an excuse, maybe. Yeah, I really feel like maybe he. I kind of feel like he was hoping to get ransom yeah. money. But I think he also yeah. probably just wanted to rape and kill someone. It's kind of, I mean, otherwise you would just kidnap, like, oh my god, okay. <sighs> so she, her body was found buried underneath a compost pile at the end of his driveway. Her body was preserved by a layer of cement and lime, so it was easy to identify. Lord was convinced of her, kid, uh, convicted of her kidnapping and murder. He was sentenced to life in prison. He died um, as of 2016, he was listed as deceased. Unfortunately, oh Martha's, Aunt, Martha's husband, this Alan, passed away. This segment on Unsolved Mysteries is incredibly short, but incredibly uh, shocking. Yeah. When that update comes up, I honestly, like, gasped and, like, dropped they... what I was holding. The idea that it was the neighbor and just put her at the end of the driveway, it's so fucking terrible. It's horrible, and... I don't know. Did they need to include it? Like, I, I understand they're, like, redoing the episodes or whatever, or, the, you know, the show or whatever, but, like, this is literally yeah. maybe five minutes, oh, and it's or family. horribly depressing. Alright, are we gonna yeah, do a sure. recommendation let's, segment? Let's do you have something to recommend? I, earlier in the week, <laughs> was gonna recommend a fucking nail polish at this point. And, oh my god, can I not think of anything more pointless okay. to do? I don't want you to go to the store and buy it. So I'm not going to recommend that now. That's how, that's how quickly things have changed. This is a good point. Where I was like, ooh, I really like this. Better recommend. <laughs> and now I'm like, oh my god, no. Please stay inside. So I have a recommendation for while you're stuck inside. I have a movie, I have a movie recommendation. And this is actually... Sounds great. Uh... I like black and white movies, and sometimes they're not really on a lot of streaming services, and I think they got rid of uh, Filmstruck or whatever the like classic movie one was anyway. But uh, if movies are old enough and unpopular enough, nobody protects their copyright on YouTube. So this movie is on YouTube. You can watch oh. the whole thing for free. It's available to everyone. So the movie I am recommending is called The Leather Boys. It is from 1964. It is an English kitchen sink movie, which means that it's from the era with a, which was the start of people using like real working class accents in movies. Um, before that, everybody was like, you know, trained, um, like high class right we was the only type oh, of accents yeah. english accents that you heard in movies what was the well so this is different in america i presume but there's like yes the, the mid the mid-atlantic carrie grant movie? and Catherine hepburn are both examples of the ah, mid-atlantic accent yeah. 
um, which is not something you really just kind of died out. You don't really hear that anymore. But um, so this is an example of a movie like that where people it takes place. um, It just involves real working class actors using their actual accents. So that's kind of cool. It is the story of two people who fall in love in like the equivalent of high school and get married really young. And it doesn't work out because they're like, 16 or whatever and um it's like their tumultuous marriage and at some point the husband i think his name is reggie ends up meeting a dude and sort of having feelings for him so it's also sort of a one of the reasons that's a important movie is it's an early example of sort of like a queer character in a movie in a not tragic way it actually went against the Hollywood oh, okay. film code at the time, but it slipped through and was shown in the United States. I don't think it was a big movie, but this would have actually, if it was an American movie, probably wouldn't have been released at all because you couldn't have gay characters. Um, but a lot of the movie revolves okay. around riding motorcycles and that's how he meets this dude. And they're like, going on motorcycle rides together and you get to see the ace cafe which is a very famous place in london associated with uh riding bikes and stuff like that so all that footage is really cool i think the story is interesting it's actually like very funny um i enjoy it a lot and uh i don't even know what else to say about it this is also an example of where the movie is much better than the book i've read the book and that's just sort of typical gay pulp from that era um but the movie i think sort of elevates the story into something better so you can find that on youtube just searching for the leather boys i think it's under there from 1963 which is not the right year but if you just put in like the leather boys full film or something like that you'll find it and then um give it a watch that's my suggestion nice awesome I was thinking, just like you, that I would recommend something to watch while you are stuck inside. Um, Travis and I stumbled upon this documentary on Amazon the other day that I think is new to Amazon. Um, It's called Tread, like the treads of a tire. It is the wild story of a man who becomes upset with people in his small Colorado town. Maybe you've heard of this story. Um, And he takes a bulldozer to and goes through a rampage on the town like demolishing buildings it's fucking wild i will say the documentary like kind of wants to be a netflix style documentary a little bit too much it kind of goes like over the top with the like drone shots and like the reenactments are real cheesy but you get the whole story and there's sort of a story arc with it as far as like learning like where this guy came from and his history with this town and was he or was he not considered an outsider and there's like it's like there's small town drama where there's like the rich family and like all kinds of stuff he gets pissed off yeah yeah spoil like his motivations or whatever by behind what he did but he literally takes a bulldozer and I need to watch this immediately and at the end there's like like (laughs) it's in so Travis already knew this would happen because he's big into like cars and 
like equipment and stuff like that so he had known about it but he didn't know like all the details so we watched this together and we're just like completely fucking blown away by the story and at the end so after you get like the whole story of what led up to it the last part of it like the last maybe third of the movie it or the documentary is footage like like news footage from it and actual footage of like the rampage and how they tried to stop it and like it's absolutely fucking wild like have you ever seen roadhouse will not believe like what it's crazy this kind of reminds me of roadhouse i have not someone goes on like a a monster truck rampage uh which also maybe we should do a patreon episode of roadhouse nobody saw that coming maybe sure that's sounds it's like one of mac's absolute favorite movies it might happen and then we could get mac on okay anyway go on yeah oh that'd be fun i didn't have much else to say about it it's kind of like a simple i don't want to call it simple but like it's it's a pretty straightforward story and uh yeah i don't know i wouldn't say it's like the no best i need to know i need to know seen, like, this is fascinating it's completely is completely insane and they do sort of do like a switcheroo on you in the middle too i don't know it's kind of not kind of it's absolutely wild and uh if nothing else you have to watch it for like the footage of this guy and this bulldozer uh and like yeah the police like at one point a police officer is riding on top of the bulldozer trying to like get inside i'm actually really excited to watch this so yeah you have to check it out it's 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 pretty wild and i was gonna post about it in our facebook group but i kind of like didn't want to give anything away uh so yeah i highly recommend if you're stuck inside um in these end times okay yeah that's great on amazon prime um we can wrap it up. Yeah, I think, uh, I think that's it. I mean, I don't know that I really gave a shit about sure. our social media right now. Um, but if you want to listen to more episodes, <laughs> I guess you can uh, sign yeah. up for a Patreon. You can find the link at our website, perhapsithee.com. We've got a back catalog there. Yeah. You can get some bonus content. Yeah, there's like 23 episodes or something. Maybe even more than that by now. You only I mean, do it or don't. It's up to you. All of that. So if you need something to, <laughs> if you need something to listen to, I mean we've done more uh, than a hundred episodes can, for free. Uh, feel um, free to go back through that catalog and listen to stuff. If if you have suggestions for things you would maybe like us to do in the show, now that the world is different, I mean we'll listen. I will say we have, I think, figured out how to record remotely. We're using this app called Anchor. Yeah. It's working pretty well. Uh, knock on wood. <laughs> so maybe we'll have some some remote guests on the show. That might be fun. You know, we're all stuck. In yeah, we yeah. Maybe we'll try to do some guests. bonus stuff. I, um, I don't know. Yeah, we'll see where this apocalypse takes us. Um, for now, you can follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our Instagram is not super active. I'm on there way is. too this much. I have a problem. I might be addicted. Um, so that's perhaps it's you at Twitter. If you wanted to drop us an email, it's perhaps it's you podcast at gmail.com. I definitely will read it. Um, so, yeah. I don't know. Hang in there, everybody. We're thinking of you.
I think we are. And uh, yeah. Take care of yourselves well, I mean, and stay yeah. inside. Take we have to protect BD Wong. <laughs> yeah. And that, if that also, doesn't keep don't you worry inside, about solving mysteries right now. Okay. Take a break. We got more important things to worry about right yeah. now. You're relieved <laughs> of your mystery solving duty. Agreed. Okay. Goodbye. Till next time. Absolutely. Bye.